Sunday of September, that puts us like three-fourths of the way through. Unless it's new math now and I'm just missing something. But uh, who knows what the Lord has in store for us these next three months. But I can tell you one thing. The last few days, He has poured out His Spirit upon a group of men up at Springville Camp and Conference Center. What a great week we've had. I hope you've had a good week. It's been an awesome week for us men. Um, and I hope that not too far down the road, some of them will share a little bit of the changes that God has started. I just, uh, you know, there's a lot of things. This is like the year of Shemitah. If you haven't heard that, it's, it's a seven-year period. It's... Um, and this is uh, the year where Yom Kippur is in this month. And so there's a lot of things. about This is the anniversary of 9-11. Um, a group of 14-year-olds on uh, 9-11, on September the 11th, a group of 14-year-olds were interviewed, probably about 10 of them, 10, 12. And they had the distinction of being born on that very day of 9-11. And one of the boys... Uh, they asked him, what, what's your story? And he says, well, my, my mom went into labor with me early that, that morning. And I think it was an uncle that worked at the World Trade Center. And instead of going to work, he went to join the family at the hospital. And so everybody paused and the uh, interviewer on the news, is one of the news channels says, well, how do you, what do you think about that? He says, I, I think it's pretty neat that when I was born, I saved my uncle's life. And we don't, we don't really think of salvation that way, though, do we? And the reason we don't think of salvation that way is that we don't know that sometimes we need saving from because we're not aware of the danger that might be lurking that day. The following summer after 9-11, Brenda and Kelly and I went to Times Square Church for a pastor's conference. And this was like just you know, uh, not even quite a full year, and so they still had the triage and the banners, and the, and it was just, man, I, I can't even tell you the, the effect of walking by that place. And, um, and we asked, we went to Times Square Church where David Wilkerson uh, founded this great church right there in New York City, and David Wilkerson went on to be with the Lord, but we went to a guest area where they had some orange juice and snacks and things, and and there was different people from the church that was go, going around to the tables. We had a young lady come to our table, and we were engaging her in conversation. She didn't want to know where we were from. And so we're here from Alabama. We're here for the pastor's conference. And we asked her, said, did you lose anyone in your church at 9-11? And says, uh, you know, thankfully, we did not lose anybody in our church. We had people that worked in the trade center, but we didn't lose anyone. About a month before this happened, Pastor Wilkerson told the church that God had just pressed upon him to cancel all their extra activities that they had planned that month and that they were to seek God every day for his oversight of the city and over the church and over the people. And said one of the stories that came out of 9-11 was one of the ladies that worked in the trade center the Monday, the day before, was given a pink slip out of nowhere and fired. Now that would have been a bad day. 
I don't know how you connect the dots with prayer, but I don't think it was an accident that that church was praying and somehow God was working in those prayers. Now, they were right there on the spot to minister to a lot of broken and devastated people because the, you know, over 3,000 people died on that side alone that day. But I want to talk to you a little bit about salvation because salvation, in a way, talks about being rescued, right? That if, if someone is saved, it means they were rescued. Now, you know, that uncle didn't know he was being rescued that day when a member of his family went into labor with, with a pregnancy. But it really kind of gives the idea that there's something going on, there's a danger there, there's imminent death maybe, and when you save someone, it's kind of like it's obvious that there was something very bad going on and somebody stepped in and rescued them. Isaiah 61, Jesus preaches his own mission in Luke chapter 4. When he turns to the scroll of Isaiah, and I mentioned this last week when I showed you a picture of the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea, and Jesus turns to Isaiah 61. I want you to turn to Isaiah 61 with me just for a moment. And there's a part of salvation I'm going to really zero in on specifically. Because I believe this man that was saved from the catastrophe of the World Trade Centers, everybody got up that Tuesday morning, no one had any idea of how our nation would be forever touched by that, 9-11. Because there was not an awareness that there was danger that day. And sometimes I think when we're going through life, thank God he doesn't let us know all the times we're in danger. We have absolutely no idea how close to death we've come. Because we didn't have a near accident on the interstate, but maybe just a little bit of delay. That was my mom's always, it was always her excuse for saying to daddy when we were on our way to Evansville, it was only probably 30 miles north of Harpersville, and she, looked, she would look to him and says, Winford, did you turn the iron off? And it would just drive him out of his mind. Well, now you ask me. And sometimes it, it just got to a point where he turned around and went back and checked. And here's my mom. It's off. Well, you never know that that delay could keep us from an accident. So how do you argue with that? So you never know, in her mind, maybe the Lord just wanted us to be a little bit later. Now, men don't think that way. We think about being earlier, not later. But Isaiah 61 is where Jesus turned, turned to, to preach his own mission. And follow this with me. I'm reading out of the NIV. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, some would say Lord God, is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Some translations say afflicted there. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, of heaviness, that they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. 
They will rebuild the ancient ruins. And Jesus didn't go this far in Isaiah 1 that we know of, what Luke records. But this is the continuation of this passage. That the results of that is that they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities and they, they have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. So they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will restore them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. This is an entire message, a prophecy of salvation. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as a soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Now, I read the entire chapter for a reason. That is because quite possibly Jesus read the entire chapter. We don't know that he did or didn't. But it could have been that he was explaining not just salvation, but what happens as a result of salvation. These first few verses, and we're going to go back and pick up verse 1 in just a moment. But these first verses was him saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's anointed me. And he goes through what his ministry is. His ministry is twofold. He's come to preach certain things, and he's come to do certain things. And when you read those first couple of verses, you hear the things that he's come to preach, and you see the things that he's come to do. So you see, salvation is more than just rescuing you and I from imminent danger or disaster. Salvation, listen, salvation is all about change. Amen. Salvation is all about change. You cannot be saved for some, from something without something changing. Your situation has to change. Go back and look at verse 1. We're going to camp here just for a little bit this morning. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord as I said, some translations say, Lord God, it combines both Adonai and Jehovah or Yahweh. The spirit of the sovereign Lord of the universe is on me because the Lord, again, Jehovah, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now follow this. He says, I've come because the spirit of God is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's primarily anointed me to preach 
the good news to the poor. If you have a translation saying afflicted, is that what you're saying? To preach good news to the afflicted? It really is more of that. When we hear the word poor, we're thinking of someone who doesn't have much money. They're maybe homeless. They don't have sufficient substance to, to nourishment. There's, there's a lack in their lives. They are isolated. They're depleted. And we think that way. When we think of poor, we think of people who don't have much. But what this word really conveys is that people who are devastated spiritually, they're afflicted, they're weary, they're empty. And see, poverty there is not about economics, is it? You don't have to be poor physically in order to be rich spiritually. I think it was James says, God has chosen the people who are poor, who are rich in faith to show his favor to them. The word conveys that something is really lacking in their life. And this is salvation. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to preach to those who were hopeless. Those who were the lowest of people in the community. Some of the most despised people. I know you'll find this hard to believe. Some of the most despised people in the Jewish community were people of wealth. Tax collectors. Because they made a very good living collecting taxes. It's kind of hard to like a tax collector anyway, isn't it? But especially when you know that they're skimming off the top. And they live in the gated communities and they have the best vehicles and they have everything. And, and when people looked upon them, they, they just despise publicans. Not Republicans, publicans. Because they, they were officers of the state. Of Rome, they were Jewish men who had who had landed a contract with the Roman occupiers, and they were making a great living. But it was to those people who everybody hated that Jesus ended up sitting at meals in their homes to tell them that they needed hope in their lives, because they knew how despised they were. And then he said, "This he had sent me. This is not something." He said, I've come to preach. He said, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And that word actually means crushed, torn apart, not just having a, a heavy heart. It talks about people whose lives have been shattered. It even has kind of like a violent tone to it. People who went through violent times in their lives, completely broken and shattered. But here's where we're going to stop a little bit. He has sent me to proclaim freedom. This is the last part of verse 1. Are you there? I want you to underline it or highlight it in your Bible if you've got a highlighter. He's come, he sent me to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for prisoners. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for prisoners. It sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? You think captives and prisoners are the same, but they're not quite the same. Captives has the idea that somebody externally has overwhelmed the city and have taken people captive. I don't know how many of you have not went to see War Room, but you're just missing it. Okay, I'll, that's all I say about War Room. But there was a, a trailer about two or three other films coming. 
And one of them was about captive. Have you seen that? And when Brenda and I was there watching War Room, she said, I, I remember that story. That's a true story. I remember, I remember that lady sharing her testimony. And since you're not going to go see that either, let me just tell you what it's about. It's about this lady, a Christian lady, who is taken hostage by an escaped convict. And during this horrific time where he has her captive in her own house, she has Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, that he allows her to read. And then he, I guess he starts asking her, well, read me some. And the more she read The Purpose Driven Life, the more conviction this guy came under. And that's all I know about the situation. Brenda knows uh, more than I know. But it's about that. It's about someone being held against their will. And Jesus said, I've come to tell people who feel like you're being held Against your will, I've come to proclaim. Isn't it interesting? He didn't say to to deliver. I've come to tell you, to preach to you, to proclaim to you liberty. And we think, how can a speech make captive people free? Because he's not talking about the situations like that woman was in. He's talking about people who are held captive in their own lives. Because you believe stuff about yourself and it's enslaved you. And he says, I've come to bring a message of freedom to you, of release to you, of liberty to you. The good news is that there's liberty for you if you feel captive. And then he goes to this next idea about being released from Darkness, prisoners released from darkness. Now, I wanted to take you back to that word, proclaim freedom. Now, I had to, I had to go back and get this because I was just so overwhelmed <laughs> when we were singing the first verse. The word for um, freedom is, is an interesting word. It means to fro- flow freely. It applies more to a stream that's not dammed up, that's not inhibited. It means something that has freedom to move, free-flowing. And did you realize the very first verse in the song we were singing this morning said this, I've got a river of living water, a fountain that never runs dry. It's an open heaven you're releasing, and we will never be denied. I was like, wow, the title of my message today is release. And release is this free-flowing. And this is an interesting word. It's not used very much in the Old Testament. It's only used seven times in the entire Old Testament. Something very specific. Jesus knew what he was saying when he stood in front of his hometown synagogue. And he knew exactly what that verse was saying. He said, I'm, I'm looking at you and I know all of you. And I know some of you are inhibited in your life. You're shackled in your life. And this day is a day that you get freedom. The caveat is this, if you want it. Because, see, I'm just going to tell you about it. 
I'm not going to come directly to you and start sorting your life out. I'm going to tell you that there's freedom for you. That you can be free to move. Only seven times. Three of those times is found in Jeremiah 34. Now, if you have your Bible open, I want you to track this with me just for a little bit, okay? Jeremiah 34. Or you can pull it up on your phone. Jeremiah 34. To give you an idea, late in Jeremiah's ministry, Jeremiah was not the most popular preacher in, in, in town. <laughs> Poor God, nobody liked Jeremiah. It was him against the world. And, and the reason was Jeremiah was preaching and he was telling the people, this is it. The Babylonian army outside these gates. And if you read the first part, I'm going to go to verse 8 here in just a moment of Jeremiah 34. But if you read the first part, right before that, Jerusalem and two other cities are the only fortified cities that are still not completely captured by Nebuchadnezzar. But this great army out there is surrounding this city, and people do not have any aspirations that this is going to end good. And yet there was false prophets going around says the Lord will deliver us. The Lord will do miracles for us. The Lord will cause those people to go back home. And here's Jeremiah, the only preacher in town, that is telling him, nope, it's not going to happen. And he goes to Zedekiah, King Zedekiah, and he tells him, this is not going to go well for you. And one of the things that that happens in the city is this. They know everything is about to collapse. So the city, Zedekiah calls the city to build a covenant together. Let's covenant together. And here's one of the things we have allowed to go on that we know that God is not pleased with because we went through the year of Shemitah, the seventh year, and every seven years, every seven years, the Jewish law required them if anyone was indentured in a way to be as a slave or a servant, to pay past debts, you could only use them for six years. And when year seven rolled around, you had dismissed the debt and released them. It wasn't like slaves like what our nation dealt with in its early history. This was people who couldn't pay their debts, so they became obligated in a way, enslaved to people to pay their debt. If it took them six, ten, whatever years to pay a debt, they could only use six years. And what King Zedekiah, I think King Zedekiah says, you know what, we got to get something that's wrong right before we finish our nation's history here. And so he made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem, says, turn, turn all your servants loose. Free them. And this is where verse 8, this is where this word, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release or a free flow of people out of their debt to them. They had not done that, so they did that. It's a great day, right? Doesn't last. In verse 11, like a lot of people, like, man, you know, we need them to help clean the house. And we done turn them loose. Go get them. And everybody goes back and gets the people they had released and brings them back and puts them back under the obligation of paying their debt. That's verse 11. They changed their mind. 
in verse 15, the Lord speaks to, to Jeremiah again. Now follow this. Although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight, Jeremiah has given them the word of the Lord. Although recently you turned and did what was right in my sight, each man proclaiming release, there's that word again, freedom, free-flowing to the neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. They did this at the temple. Yet you turned and profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire. And you brought them into subjection to, your, to be your male servants and your female servants. Therefore, watch this. You ought to, you ought to pay close attention to this verse. Because there's a principle here that's in Isaiah 61. Watch this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, free-flowing, each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming release to you. But when you read the next words, it's not a positive. The Lord says, you have failed to carry through with what I've told you to release. Now I'm telling you, I'm, re I'm proclaiming a release to you that I'm releasing you to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famines, and I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. He says, you will be an embarrassment before this is all over because I'm releasing you to judgment. And if you go back to Isaiah 61, you'll see that judgment is right there. To proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favor, right? How many like that? The year of the Lord's favor. You like that? You like the next few words. Isn't that a wonderful positive? And the vengeance of our God. Well, I don't really like I don't vote for that. I vote for the year of the Lord's favor. Not for the day of the vengeance of the Lord's wrath. God's vengeance. And this is, what, this is what's going on here. The Lord is saying, I want to release you, but because to release you to freedom, to free-flowing liberty and healing, but because you won't release I'm not going to release you to that. I'm going to release you instead to judgment. And you're going to miss your own release. You're going to miss your own victory because you didn't obey me. I want you to see this in verse 2 because it's right there. God wants to make a change in your life. When you read the after that, the year of the Lord's favor, the vengeance of our God, What's oh, the very next line? It's almost like the vengeance of God is out of place, isn't it? And to comfort those who mourn. And what he gives next is what he wants to do. To give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy. To give you a garment of praise instead of that cloak of heaviness. To turn your life from this to that. If there's ever been a truth to us, in the scriptures that God wants positive change in our lives. He desires to release his goodness in our lives. If you go four chapters over in Jeremiah's prophecy, and, and I'm going I'm to just summarize this, but you can go over there and, and you can follow this with me. Between 34 and 38, 
Jeremiah's just, people don't like him. He's telling people this is it. God's going to judge. God is, this is part of God's judgment on the nation of Judah. And these people will capture this city. These people will capture the city. And he's telling people this. And Zedekiah has all of these people in his ear. He knows what's coming down. I believe he really knows what's coming down. He doesn't want to accept it. And he's got all these people in his ear and they're saying to him, you know what? Jeremiah is depressing people. Jeremiah, the soldiers in the army are out there hearing him preach and, and they, he's, he's just depressing them. He's making everybody lose confidence. He's out there telling everybody that the city is going to be captured. And, and you can't let him do that. We need to kill him. We need to take him out. And King Zedekiah gave them permission to lock him up. But they just didn't lock him up. They put a rope on him and lowered him down into a cistern that was knee-deep in mud and water and cold. And, and that was their way of slowly killing him. And after a while, Zedekiah has some, some clarity enough. He, he calls because he wants... He wants to hear what God has to say. And Jeremiah's the man of God, so he orders him to be brought. And, and he tells Jeremiah in chapter 38, tell me truly what God is saying. He says, if I tell you, you will kill me. <laughs> and Zedekiah says, I promise you, no matter what you say, you will not be killed. And then in verse 17, this is what he tells him. If you're in Jeremiah 38, verse 17. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. And see, this is what Zedekiah, this is what Zedekiah wanted. He wanted to hear, what is, what is the truth here, Jeremiah? I'm hearing voices. And you see, all of us in this room have issues in our lives, and it depends on who you're listening to as to what you're going to do about it. And Zedekiah was hearing all kinds of other people, but he needed to hear Jeremiah. And this is what Jeremiah said. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says, if you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be handed over to the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from their hands. And King Zedekiah, he's processing this. And, he, and the, this is the big thing that's holding him up right here. You're about to read it in verse 19. He said, I'm afraid of the Jews. There's, there was people who had deserted Jerusalem, went over to the Babylon, Babylonians. And he said, I'm afraid that those who went over to the Babylonians, that the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. In other words, I, they're going to punish me because I'm no longer the king to them. I'm going to be someone that they can beat up. Then it will go, in, in, in Jeremiah's response in verse 20 was, they will not hand you over. He's telling him, that's not going to happen, king. That will not happen. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. And it will go well with you, and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender... This is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah, in fact, all of his family, 
will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you, those trusted friends of yours. Your feet are sunk in mud. Your friends have deserted you. He said, all your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned down. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, do not let anyone... Isn't it interesting? He's more concerned about what people think about it. Don't let anyone know that we've had this conversation, or I'll kill you. You'll die. Don't, Don't tell anybody that you and I have had this conversation. If the officials hear that I've talked to you and they come to you and say, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you, do not hide it from us or we will kill you. Everybody's wanting to kill Jeremiah, poor guy. Then you tell them this, I was pleading with the king not to send me back to Jonathan's house to die there. All the officials did come. They did exactly what Zedekiah, they did come to Jeremiah and question him and he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more to him, for no one had heard his, his conversation with the king. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. All right. Next chapter, I'm not going to read from it. Tragedy. Utter tragedy. Zedekiah, instead of listening to Jeremiah, decides to take things into his own hands. And in the middle of the night, what few horses they had, he got him and his family, and they tried to break out of the city and escape. Babylonians captured him near Jericho. He didn't get very far at all. They brought him to where King Nebuchadnezzar had set up camp. And King Nebuchadnezzar had him stand in front of him and ordered the execution of his sons in front of him. They turned around and gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. But the last thing he saw was his sons being executed. And he was taken off to Babylon, but he died in peace. He became, had favor. But here it was. He had issues in his life, and he was weighing how to get out of it. It could just, the city wouldn't even been burnt down. They could have spared the city. And see, there's things going on around you that depends on your response. And your response is not ever going to be isolated to you. All the people connected to you is going to be influence. God wants to proclaim freedom to you. A free flowing to get rid of the inhibitions in your life, to get rid of the addictions in your life, to get rid of obsessions in your life, to get rid of those shadowy places in your life. You see, we just don't need salvation from danger. We need salvation from us. I wish that the devil was my own worst enemy. But the one that gives me the worst problems is the one I see in the mirror. Because it's in my heart and in my mind that I make decisions. And I can't blame anybody else for those but myself. But here's the great thing. 
you get a choice. You get a choice too as to who you're going to listen to. Do you want freedom in your life? Do you want real freedom in your life? Do you want to be free from the intimidation of people? Do you want to be free of your own shackles, of your own estimation of what you can or cannot do? Nobody else has enslaved you. It's the things that we say to ourselves that enslaves us. And as Brandon comes, this is a question. I mean, this is like Jesus is proclaiming freedom to you. He's proclaiming freedom to you. He's proclaiming a free flow to get rid of the things that are limiting you and causing you not, you know, we, we can say, well, I'm just, I just got too much on my plate. I, I just don't have time for that. I can, and we can go along and just make excuses for ourselves. But he said, I want to free you from the things that limit you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would tug at our hearts enough for us to say, I want to go with you, Lord. I don't want to go with what I'm saying to myself. I don't want to go with what people around me. I don't want to make the grave mistake of Zedekiah, worried about self-preservation, worried about image, that I make bad decisions. Worried about my status at my school, or my place at work. I don't want to disrupt anything that's going good for me. And yet there's things that's about to crash. And you want to spare that young man, that young lady. You want to spare families today of where they're heading. There's danger ahead. And you want to give them freedom. You want to tell them this morning there's hope for you. Our heads bowed. I, want to, I believe God is giving a specific admonition to some in this room that there is hope for you. Your situation is not hopeless. Everything around you tells you it is. But God has a word, and that word is release. He's declaring release to you. Release of the despair. Release of the depression. Release of the doubt release of the fear choose to put your life in his hands and not try to fix things yourself let him let him repair your life let him heal your life this morning and Lord I thank you that you are speaking to us and I do pray that you'll draw us closer that we'll know your heart. And not just know your heart, we'll hear your voice telling us, I freed you. I freed you this morning. If, if you hear, if you're hearing the Lord tell you this morning, I'm freeing you, I'm freeing your family. I'm freeing you individually. I want you to stand up where you're at, just come and stand here, right here with me. God is speaking. I'm freeing you this morning. I am freeing you. I am setting you free. I'm freeing you. I'm freeing you. I'm accepting the freedom that God is giving.